0: Welcome today. It's our second week in our Home Improvement Series. We, we, we also entitled it Getting Real About the Health of Your Family. And thanks for being here today. You picked a great day to be here. If you're a guest with us today, I know that for some of you, maybe it's the first time you've been here, and you may have even said to your family, when pigs fly, I'll go to church. Some of you are from Cincinnati. You understand what I just said? The rest of you are going to go, the Flying Pig Weekend. Come on, we're Cincinnatians. You know, we're not from Louisville. We don't do the Derby. We do Flying Pig. That tells you a lot about us, right? Anyhow, it's good to see each of you here today. And, and uh, <clears throat> last week, Kevin kicked us off with Choose Today to follow the biblical teaching about families. And that's always a challenge, isn't it? Because there are no good examples of family in the Old Testament, have you ever read through the Old Testament? and You say, okay, I want to pattern my family after one of the families in the Old Testament. So do you want to be like Adam and Eve where the oldest son kills the brother? Do you want to be like Abraham where he tries to make his wife his sister? Do you do you want to be in Jacob's family with twelve boys where eleven or excuse me, ten of them conspire against the eleventh and sell him into slavery because they're too afraid to kill him? I mean, you go on down through the road. Do you want to be like Hosea where he has to marry Gomer, who is a prostitute, who goes back to her profession and and he goes back after I mean you go family after family after family. David, a man after God's own heart, his son tries to kill him. So we're not looking at Old Testament families as examples. We're we're looking for what is the teaching in the Scripture about what the family should be like. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus teaches us about relationships under his leadership some of you know Nancy's in London, and a number of people asked why she went to London, England. Well, we have an adopted son there. Uh, we call him uh, we call him Bill, and her her name is Cat. And you know, you think about the, some of you didn't know that. I'm just revealing that today. Even the elders didn't know about this. Um, and, and and so you look at real families versus ideal families. So I wanted to make sure you had a picture of of Bill and Cat, and they're they're just ideal. Some of you know them as William and Catherine, but that's okay. Uh, We got this inroad. No, that looks like an ideal family, doesn't it? Maybe this other picture looks like an ideal family as well, quite a bit. But for some of us, real families look more like this, right? Maybe that's what it was like as you were on your way to church today. You were trying to get people to eat. And by the way, this is time for that shameless plug that we have a pancake breakfast downstairs for our Haiti mission team. So take your kids down there and let somebody else yell at them. No, there you go. So there you go. Shameless plug for today. It's like Marty Brennan on the, on radio broadcast, right? I mean, he, don't, he always has, you know, first inning brought to you by train. And he did one the other day. I went, that just doesn't fit, Marty. Sorry. I got off. Nobody, I'm never distracted. Am I up here? By the way, have a couple of friends here from high school, Dan, uh, Dan and Luann, and, uh, Dan, Don't go talking to him because he knows that I wasn't a very good basketball player because he was really good. So now all my stories are no good, Dan, because you're here today. Uh, But they're sitting right over here and they they showed up this morning, scared me to death. So now I'm in big trouble that I can't tell you all my kid family stories as I was growing up. Well, listen, when we look at the New Testament, we see some very specific teaching about what families ought to be like. And what happens here in those New Testament times is this challenge that we run into even today that there's always some tension. You know, whenever I'm talking in marriage conversations today and sometimes even in premarital conversations, I'm not allowed to call it marriage counseling or premarital counseling anymore because I don't have a counseling license. The state of Ohio says you're not a counselor so you can't call it counseling. But it's counseling, never mind. Uh, but someone will always say love shouldn't be this hard. In marriage conversations, love shouldn't be this hard. I mean, it, it, if you really love somebody, it ought to just take place, right? And, and my response is, why do you believe that? You know, when you talk to a professional baseball player, wouldn't, wouldn't he say, well, it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Or maybe a novelist who says, it shouldn't be so hard to create believable characters in an engaging storyline. Or an artist says, it shouldn't be so hard to come up with ideas and things I could put on the canvas that will speak to people's needs. But you're saying, wait a minute, Rick. Marriage is not being a baseball player or literature or an artist. But, but listen, listen. This is love. It's love. Love shouldn't be so hard. Love should come naturally. Love should be easy. If two people are compatible, if they're truly soulmates... I like what Duke University Ethics Professor Stanley Hauerwas wrote. He said this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole or happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We always marry the wrong person, Howard says. We never know whom to marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. Have you noticed that? Nancy and I will be married 45 years in August and uh, we are not the same persons that we were when we got married. Nancy says, thank God. Uh, but there's, there's that aspect that we change. Harris goes on and says, for marriage, being, that's this enormous thing, being means that we are not the same person as we entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. See, I'm always shocked by young people who will and you'll hear it on the television or the radio or other places and conversations where they'll say I just can't imagine how you could be married 40 45 or buddy Sarno was sitting down here in the front 73 years to the same person it would just be so boring They said you don't understand that's a different person every day that I've woken up beside for 45 years that's what marriage is folks It is living with that stranger that you've married and becoming one. We'll see that in Scripture here in just a few minutes. You see, marriage brings you into the most intense uh, proximity to another human being that any other relationship can. And the moment you marry someone, both of you begin to change in profound ways. And you can't know ahead of time what those changes could be. Over the years, you'll learn to love a person whom you did not marry who is sometimes a stranger. And if the covenant is not broken, the journey may eventually take you into a strong, tender, joyful marriage. But not because you married a perfectly compatible person. That person doesn't exist. No one is perfectly compatible with me, and I am not perfectly compatible with anyone else. Too many times in our culture, we want to get rid of all tension. We we want, we say, you know, if you really, you know, if you really are getting along with each other, there shouldn't be any tension. If you're really a part of a particular team, there shouldn't be any tension. Uh, we want to write off what's real as just normal. You know, that just is what happens and it's okay and we'll go on. I mean, that that's one of the reasons why we give trophies to everyone. We, we don't say, hey, you know, you really aren't very good at this sport and you're not getting a trophy. No, no, no. Everybody gets a trophy. After all, we don't want anyone to feel bad about losing. We don't want anybody to feel like they really can't do that particular area. You know, I mean, they're just things that I'm not good at. I and mean, when I participated with those things when I was a kid, I shouldn't get a trophy for it. It makes me think I can. But there are things I'm really good at. Those are the things I should be in and doing. Now, now notice... You know what? When it comes to family, to my kids, to my grandkids, I don't want this real trophy for everybody kind of thing. I want what's ideal. I want what's ideal in their lives, right? I mean, I want kids who want to come home to visit Nancy and me as adults, that that, that they choose to come, not because there's some kind of umbrella over them that requires them to come home, I want kids that that their marriages are till death do us part. I want love and honor and respect, all those things that Jesus taught and pointed to as the ideal. And yet, He refused to condemn those who fell short. You see, that's the tension for us: is that we don't, we do not condemn those who fall short, but I cannot let go of the ideal that Jesus teaches. I can't let go of it. And as Jesus' followers, then we live in that tension. We live in the tension between the real and the ideal. And so today, what I will say to you is you can do this, what I'm about to teach, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. If you're a guest with us today, this is a great time to be here. So thanks. Thanks for coming to White Oak today. I'm going to jump right in. We're going to look in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to that or bring it up on your electronic uh, device and you can find Ephesians 5 or 6. Ephesians 5 and 6, the whole book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul is a follower of Jesus in the first century, but he, turned, he started out as an enemy of Jesus. He wanted to destroy the church. He wanted to put down everything that Jesus has taught until there's an amazing experience after Jesus raises from the dead that he appears to Paul on the road to a town called Damascus. And Paul becomes a Christian. He's baptized into Christ. He changes his life. And now he's talking to the Ephesians because what happens is when you meet Jesus, he changes your life. And when he's teaching the Greeks, and the, the Ephesians were, were Gentiles, excuse me, not Greek, they lived in Turkey. When he's teaching them, they're saying, we know the, the truth about Jesus, but what should that look like in our lives? So when you read the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are, are, are teaching about who Jesus is and what he's done for us through his death. And the last three chapters, four, five, and six, there you go, I got them all, those are about how to live this life out because nobody else taught like Jesus and nobody else lived like Jesus. So those of us who follow him do not live like others around us. And the Ephesians are going, how are we supposed to live this way? How are we supposed to do this? And, and Paul writes about how to live out the Jesus ethic. And when I talk about the Jesus ethic, I mean Jesus teaching that we're to love one another and the many other one another commands that are given in the New Testament. When Jesus says love, how do we do that? How do we love another person? So he's saying, in essence, we ask, what does love require of me? What does love look like? Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Paul teaches this real-life application. Here's what he says, just a few verses from chapter 5. Here's the first one. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. He turns to the guy and he says, And again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Then he goes on to the kids and he says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. And then he comes back to dads and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And so what he's saying to them is, Here's how we begin to live this out. When you look at them, there are five commands that are given in this section. I haven't read the first one, but I do have it up here. Submit to one another, he says. Second, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Third, he says, husbands, love your wives. Fourth, he says, children, obey your parents. And five, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Now, as you look at that whole list, and you think about them in our culture today, which one really grates on your ears? Which one really is most problematic? Which one, women, is more difficult? (laughs) Wives, submit to your husband. just sounds strange, doesn't it? It sounds weird. It's like, (laughs) Paul, come on. You just don't like us, do you? You don't like women. I mean, it just seems so unfair. But here's what I want you to see. These four at the bottom are specific applications of the first one. Submit to one another. This is how it looks. This is how it's done. That general principle in, excuse me, in Ephesians 5.22 says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea of how we submit to each other is because we revere Jesus. You see, he doesn't say just because we want to keep the social order together, just because we want to put one group down and keep another one elevated. He doesn't say any of that. He says, out of reverence for Christ. That when you do these things, you elevate Jesus and you worship him. That's the principle. Here's our big idea today. It's this. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Some of you are going, ah. well, let's jump in a little bit farther. Because Paul's teaching what submission looks like in each of our family relationships. Because following Jesus changes the status quo. He's writing of a new way to li- live. And you see here in Ephesians, this culture, they lived by the golden rule. He who has the most gold rules. That was Ephesians. The second thing they lived by was very simply, might makes right. And they lived under the Roman rule. And If you, if you went against Rome, you're dead. That, they, didn't even, they didn't ask any questions. Do you just kind of not like us? Or you just you just know, have a bad day? No. You, you went against Rome, they killed you. That was just it. And power. Power was the third thing that you saw in this culture, basically, is how can I use my power to elevate myself and to solidify my position? In fact, Ephesus is also the center of worship for Artemis. Artemis was a female goddess of the Greeks. N.T. Wright says this about her. He says, Artemis was indeed great. She, Artemis is her Greek name and Diana is her Roman name, was the most powerful divinity in the place and had been for a long time. In the distant past, a meteorite had smashed into the surface of the earth somewhere near Ephesus and the local people had regarded it as a gift from heaven. And a statue, though presumably not very lifelike, was erected using this meteorite of the goddess herself. The temple of Artemis was massive, and her cult, run entirely by female officials, was the religious center of the whole area. Images of Artemis, large and small, dominated the city. So, so Paul is writing about family in the midst of this, this culture that, that is antithetical, really, to all the stuff that Jesus has taught. He's writing about uh, submission to a family dynamic in a in a culture where the dominant woman, excuse me, dominant God was a woman, and, and she used her power to bring people under her rule. She she wanted people submitted to her, and Paul's teaching us, as he saw in Jesus' life, that we are to leverage our power for the good of others, not for the good of ourselves. And so he's challenging all that he sees around him. So what's it look like? How do we live out this principle of mutual submission out of reverence for Christ? See, this is the hallmark of Christian families, this living out this submission because of reverence for Christ. My power, my assets, my time is all used for your benefit. And that's the example of Jesus, right? he had all power, all authority, all gifts, all abilities, all assets were his. And yet he got under our brokenness. He washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. He protects them in the garden, stepping forward. He empowers them with his gospel. He uses, in fact, he does not use his power and his authority to elevate himself. He says, I'm here for you. He says, I'm here for you and for you. And for you, and for you, he does not elevate himself. In fact, when you read later on in the book of Philippians, Paul says that that Jesus recognized that it was not his Godhead that he was to grasp. Being God was not to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself in the form of a man. He was willing to give all that up to care for us. Later on, that passage, it says, and God elevated him, but but Jesus did not use his power to elevate himself. So here's what I want you to learn today. I I want you to learn a question that uh, can help you live out submission, taught to wives, husbands, children, fathers, whatever, here in in Ephesians chapter 5. And it's this simple question, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? You need to practice that. Ready? Here you go. What can I do to help? Say it again. What can I do to help? Say it one more time. What can I do to help? Because regardless of where we fall in the family, husband, wife, son, daughter, older, youngest, no one is more important than the other. The question we ask is, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? This question changes everything. Kids, if you use this, your parents will pass out. Yeah. Man, if you use this, your wife will faint. Right there, right at the washing machine, right at the dishwashing. If you use this, your boss will look at you oddly. Because later on in the passage, it talks about employee slaves. It talks about employers, how we relate to each other. What can I do to help you? What can I do to help? If you say this, your kids will look at you like you're nuts. What? You really want to help me? Can I encourage you to say this at least once a day? What can I do to help? What can I do to help to those people who are part of your family? I mean, in a world that's all about me, this is a game changer. Leadership is not about pronouncing. It's about prostrating. That is so radically different. It says that if I'm a leader, I'm really a servant. That's what Jesus is teaching here all the way along. It's not about pronouncements. It's about servants being prostrate before others. I mean, I I realize, so wives, you speak up. You say, I'm aware of the place that God's given you, husband. I'm trying not trying to interfere, but what can I do to help? How can I help you go farther, faster? Husbands, we are really scared of this question. And our wives are afraid to ask because we react so negatively when they ask for our help. Because we tend to resist. We tend to cringe if anybody asks if we were to ask anybody for help, it's like we're weak. And so we have a hard time asking to others, how can I help you? How can I help you? And literally mean that. Not just say it in passing as you're on the way of the television set. Men, I know you would die for her. I know you'd take a bullet for your family. But the question here is, will you live? for her? Will you live for them? Because dying is just this thing, this idea, but every day you have to live for your family. And Paul says, this is how you live for them. How can I help? How can I help? Children, how often people say you just care about yourself and your, ch- your schedule. That's the whole conversation around millennials and Gen Z is they're all about themselves. They only care about themselves and so forth. So listen, let me tell you, if you asked this question, what would it mean when you got home every day if you asked your parents, how can I help? After the squad left and resuscitated them, you know, what would that be like, right? I mean, if you ever did this in front of your parents' friends, Can can I tell you, when you left the room, what would happen? Your parents' friends would run over and grab them and say, teach us how to do that. How do we get our kids to ask that question? I mean, it's just not a question that we hear in our culture much at all. This question builds the bridge to mutual submission. But the biggest hurdle to it is fear. We're just afraid. We are afraid that we'll be taken advantage of. We're afraid that we'll be pulled off our path. But let's look again at Jesus, because that's what Paul points to every time Paul refers to him in Ephesians 5 and 6. Jesus came asking the question, what can I do to help? And he answered it with another statement when he said, I'm right here. I'm right here. See, the two things that Jesus did is he asked, What can I do to help? And the second thing is, he said, I'm right here. That's what the end of of Matthew 28 says. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm right here. So parents, do your kids know that you're right there for them? Kids, do your parents know that you're right there for them? you got their back. Husbands, do your wives know you've got their back? Wives, do your husbands know that you've got their back? Because Jesus has our back. I'm right here. What's Jesus do? It says here that he became number two. As we already said before, he didn't hold on to being God. He emptied himself. I mean, we struggle with headship, with ultimate authority. Who has ultimate authority? And sometimes people will say, well, you know, if there's not a head in the family, that's you go first, you go first, you go first. And nobody goes anywhere. That's not what headship is about. Jesus is head of the church. And what did he do? He gave his life away. He gave his life away. He leveraged his power, his assets, his time for me and for you. So when he calls us to do that through the writings of Paul, how am I leveraging my time and my assets and my power for others? You give up power that comes with your authority. In fact, biblically, the more authority that you have, the better servant you should be. Authority gives up power to wash another person's feet. This is providing for needs, not wants. This is being aware of what hurts another person, saying, I'm not doing that. This is being aware of what hurts me, that makes me hurt you, and I'm going to stop that. I'm going to get help for that. I'm going to be changed by that. I realize the consequences. This is providing needs, not wants. You are not a doormat. You are a servant, and a servant makes sure what is needed is provided. But the world says, hey, wait a minute, be the man of the house, make them look at you, make them bow down to you, be happy. But this is not happiness, this is control. And Jesus does not control us, so we are not called to control another person. Yesterday I got to serve with, our, with some of the leaders of our Rise Women's Ministry, and it, we were serving the folks in the Flying Pig our job was to pick up trash and recycle the appropriate things and put bottles in the right slots and compost in the right slots and all this kind of stuff. I watched how other people would do that. They stood behind their stations and waited for people to bring the trash and put them in the right spots. And sometimes they would correct them and say, no, you can't put it that there, you can't put it there. Our team was different. We stood in front of those trash cans and recycle bins and often went and took the trash from the person or also policed the grounds. I was amazed in watching how our team did that. They, they were picking up around them. They even went to other parts of the venue to pick up trash and to recycle things. Afterwards, afterwards one of the leaders of the whole, the whole venue came over and said, your team was amazing, said this to one of our leaders. Your team was amazing. We didn't have to tell them. You, you just did it. Now, we didn't wear T-shirts that said, White Oak Christian Church, servants to everybody. We didn't do that. We just did it. And, and, and it made an impact and caused a couple of conversations. That's what a servant does. Looks around and does what is needed to be done. So dads, when you look around your family, what needs to be done? Moms, when you look around your family, what needs to be done? Kids, when you look around the family, what needs to be done? A servant does what needs to be done. That's submission. That's submission. So the question, what can I do to help you, is so important. You know, as a follower of Jesus, 99.9% of the time, this won't cost you your life. But this attitude will be the key to having a great family, and that's this. I am willing to leverage all of me for us. I'm willing to leverage all of me for an us. And, and are you doing that? And are you talking about that? And then, for those of us who are recipients when a person leverages all of them for us, do you say thanks? Do you say, that's what you're supposed to do? No. Do you say thanks? Just as we say thank you to Jesus, we say thanks. So this question, what can I do to help you, forces me to lean in rather than pull away from the family. So what about you? Where are you leaning into your family? I mean, Even if you're not a Jesus follower or Bible person today, this stuff works. Take that Jesus stuff out. Wait a couple days because you don't want anybody to know you actually learned this on Sunday morning from church. You know, I mean, you want to stay a little incognito. I didn't really learn this from any Christians, right? And then, and then use the question. How can I help? And wow, I mean, things will be better in your family just by using that question promise try it try it but if you are a Jesus follower you don't have any choice this is how we live Romans 5 says this but when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners in just a moment, we're going we're to take a cup of juice and a piece of bread that will remind us of this amazing sacrifice. So if you're serving communion, if you go back and prepare for that right now. But what I want you to notice in that passage of Scripture is this. We were helpless, and in just the nick of time, Jesus showed up. In just the right time, he showed up and said, how can I help? It says that God showed us, that he demonstrated his love for us by stepping into our situation. Guys and gals, where are we leaning in to being that helper? While we were sinners, it wasn't wasn't when we deserved it. You see, in that passage of Scripture in Ephesians, it doesn't say any person deserves us to be submissive, to love, to care for, to give up our rights, to not provoke That's just who we are. How are you doing? How are you doing? We take our cue from what Jesus did for us, and he leveraged his power, his assets, his time, his life for us. Now, here's here's what I want you to be aware of, four things in our relationships. That comes from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. There are four things that he reminds us from this passage of Scripture and teaching. He says, first of all, it's this. The husband's authority, like the son's over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the interests of his wife. Jesus never did anything to please himself. Read Romans 15, 2 and 3 sometime. Read that and see. Jesus did not do these things to please himself. He only wanted to please the Father. Jesus is the one who said, Father, this cup could pass away, so I could live and everything would be cool. But even so, I'll do what you want me to do. Second thing Keller says is a wife is never to be merely compliant, but is to use her resources to empower. In Genesis, when we read about the, the creation of Eve and how she's brought as a helpmate to Adam, she's not, she's not being brought there to be compliant. She's there to be fully engaged. It says here, using her resources to empower the family. That, that's submission. Because she's in the family. Number three, a wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. No human being should give any other human being unconditional obedience. Acts five twenty nine is the story of the of the apostles meeting together with the Roman or excuse me, with the Jewish authorities, and they say, "Who are we to obey you or God?" It, it's always God. And so I, I'm not asking Nancy to give unconditional obedience to me. That is not my call and neither is she to be unconditionally obedient to me. Number four, assuming the role of headship is only done for purposes of ministering to your wife and family. That, that's why you go first. Headship means you go first. You go into the danger. You go into those places that will care for your family first. It's not about focus on you. It's about how do you care for them. As one woman wrote, why are women called to this role? The answer to that question is another question. Why did Christ become the one to give up authority to the Father? Because we know it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal. They're all God. Why does he do that? We don't know the answer to that, but we know it is a mark of his greatness, not of indecisiveness. Jesus gave up his assets, his life, His power for us. Here's the truth. When you want to say it the least, you need to say it the most. When you want to say it the least, you need to say it the most. How can I help you? Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's in this moment that we just ask you to bless and use us. Father, it's in this moment that we're reminded again of your sacrifice on our behalf. Father, as we continue to worship, We ask, Lord, that uh, you would teach us. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.